0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in L.A. and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang, and with the Pac-12 conference being first to put out a revised football schedule and a group of Pac-12 football players banding together to demand changes from the conference and its schools, it's only fitting that my guest for episode 8 of the Everything USC podcast is Mike Yam, studio host for the Pac-12 network. Mike, it's great to have you on the show.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you having me. And I love the fact that we actually have a schedule. We're creeping a little bit closer maybe to the start of the season. So definitely an exciting time after spending, what is it, like four months, four and a half months in, yeah. in quarantine shelter in place and not having much of a life.
1: It's definitely been too long dealing with all of this. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. You can also go to the website directly believe.com. that's B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. To connect with me, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, that's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Mike, let everyone know out there how they can reach you or see you.
0: Yeah, for sure. A ton of work recently on SiriusXM Radio. There's a Pac-12 radio channel, obviously on social media, at Mike underscore Yam, both on Twitter and Instagram, and then the Facebook page is just Mike Yam.
1: Let's begin by taking a look at the new USC football schedule that, if things go according to plan, will begin on September 26th with the Crosstown Showdown against the UCLA Bruins at the Rose Bowl. It would be just the sixth time ever for the Trojans to start the season versus their city rivals, and first since 1945. It would also be the first time since 1930 that this matchup isn't taking place in either November or December. The reason the Pac-12 gave for putting this game first is that due to Los Angeles being a hot spot for the COVID-19 pandemic, it gives them the flexibility to move the game if necessary, to later in the year since both teams have the same bye week on the weekend of Halloween and December 12th being an open week for the entire conference. Mike, before we get to the rest of the schedule, what was your first impression when you saw this game listed for week one?
0: Well, number one, just happy that we actually had a schedule that we could digest and at least paint the picture in our minds on how the season would go. Obviously, the rivalry matchup in week one is not what we're used to seeing, but they're not the only one. The Territorial Cup for Arizona and Arizona State also going to be a week one matchup. And generally speaking, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Apple Cup is the only one that falls in its normal time around that Thanksgiving mark. But the big game, certainly in the middle of the year, the matchup between Oregon and Oregon State also at the beginning of the season. So a weird thing to see when you see it on paper. But I think if we get to a point where we're actually getting football games, I don't care if I'm getting USC, UCLA every single week for every week, as long as there's (laughs) some games to go and watch. But I do think the schedule from an SC perspective certainly lines up fairly well. Obviously not ideal to play your rival just because everyone usually gets pretty jacked up for it. But UCLA has shown the last couple of years a little bit of a slow starter, and they usually play better in the second half of the season. And honestly, I think SC is still the favorite in that division. So to me, even big picture, I don't know if there's a team maybe even in the entire country, but certainly not in the Pac-12, that has an opportunity to benefit more from a conference-only schedule. The fact that you're booting Notre Dame and Alabama off your schedule, to me, is a huge bonus for Clay Hilton's team.
1: For sure. I think everyone is looking at USC not having to play Alabama or Notre Dame as a benefit for their ability to possibly run the table, even with the extra conference game that was added, a home game against Washington State added to the schedule to make it five away games, five home games for USC. They're going to alternate away and home throughout the entire season. That's the first time that's happening since 1969. And I think you mentioned it. We start off with rivals, but not just UCLA. The next week is against Cal for the home opener and then Stanford up at the farm. So the first three weeks of the season are against the in-state rivals in the Pac-12 for USC. That week two Cal game is also a subject to a date change game because Cal also shares the same bye week as USC, so just in case. And I get the reasons that the Pac-12 put out there for why UCLA and Cal might be games that you would have to be flexible with, but let's go through that schedule. So after the California schools, the Colorado Buffaloes come to LA, and then a road trip to Tucson against Arizona, followed by the bye week, and then Wazoo, Oregon, Arizona State, a Friday night game against Utah, which was originally a Friday night game early in the season. Now it's going to be late and then closing out this season against the Washington Huskies at home. It's still going to be a difficult schedule to try and run the table, even though a lot of people like SC's chances. What do you think of it as a whole, especially it being five and five with the bye in between?
0: Yeah, I think the important thing is SC's got a golden opportunity to get out of the gate and be five and zero heading into their bye, and really six and zero because they'd be favored in a matchup against Washington State. Still, a lot of questions surrounding the Cougs in year one under Nick Rolovich. But I look at those last four weeks, and that is daunting. That schedule. Oregon to me is still the class of the conference. I think there's an opportunity here for that to be a Pac-12 championship game preview, as in week eight when those two teams go head to head. And the importance of the following game against ASU. I really like the Sun Devils. I like SC's roster better, and I would pick SC as the favorite in that division. But my Lord, I think there's a real chance that ASU could be in that conversation as well. So, a huge matchup that could decide the South. And then, if you're not necessarily buying on ASU, maybe you're buying on Utah. So, back to back weeks, I mean, hell, three weeks in a row, just enormous matchups. And while I still question what Washington has offensively, I do feel good about a Jimmy Lake defense, which could give SC some fits. So the way they close out in those last four weeks, to me, is a juggernaut. And look, the week 12, the universal buy for the conference, I have a feeling that's going to get used at some point. So there's going to be some movement there. And I can't help but think when you go through a final four game stretch of Oregon, ASU, Utah, and UW, still knowing that you probably need to win another game in week 12 to solidify your spot in that championship game, back half of the schedule. It's a gauntlet here.
1: And I think they probably had that in mind because the original SC schedule was going to be a crazy month in November with Oregon, Washington, the rivalry game against UCLA, and then of course the normal rivalry game against Notre Dame. So maybe they had that in mind to say, hey, SC was going to have a tough closing schedule anyway. Let's keep it tough because you're right. I think it's going to be a difficult stretch down the road, especially if, say, the UCLA game ends up getting moved to the end of the year, then you have a rivalry game on top of that. So in the end, though, do you think this new schedule helps or hurts USC overall?
0: Yeah, I think the conference-only schedule helps SC. The way the league-only schedule lays out for the Trojans, I think is tough. I mean, if you look at, you know, sort of the favorites to win the conference, I think SC's in that mix. And i look at Oregon because once again, I think they're the favorite. I think Oregon's schedule, generally speaking, is more manageable. They don't have a stretch quite like SCs to finish out. In fact, it seems like it's strong competition, weaker competition. It almost alternates every single week and not entirely for Oregon. But once again, they don't have like their toughest stretch might be Washington, Cal and SC, right? But they're coming off of the bye heading into the UW game. Cal, I think, is a good team and sort of a dark horse, but not picking them right now. And then that SC game. So to me, that's the toughest portion of their schedule. And to me, that's easier than that four game stretch that I made reference to for the Trojans.
1: Right. Let's take a look at some of the other highlights of this Pac-12 schedule. I was going to mention that Oregon, they get their two rivals with a bye in between. So they play Oregon State and then they go into the bye and then it's UW and that stretch you mentioned for them. Like you said, Arizona schools are also playing their rivalry series, the Territorial Cup, hopefully in week one because they are considered a COVID hotspot out there in Arizona as well. And for me, I think the two teams that probably have the toughest opening stretch are Stanford because they go on the road to UW, ASU, get USC for their home opener, a bye, and then the rivalry game against Berkeley and Colorado at Oregon, home against Utah, at Arizona, at USC, a by ASU, and then UW on a Friday night. That's crazy stretches for those two teams.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think those would be the two that stand out to me. The only difference for me and Colorado, I think, is towards the bottom of the conference right now. And I think there's an argument if you rank the teams one through 12, CU so probably would be 12. So I think even if they had maybe a little bit of an easier schedule, I don't know how much of a difference that's going to make in terms of that win total. That's there. I'll throw another one your way in terms of a tough stretch. ASU, those first three games, like I feel good about Stanford, but when you start with your rival, not easy, then Stanford, then Oregon. So those first three weeks, look, I think if you said to me, where do they go? I still think they're, you know, I got a chance two and one. But, you know, for a team that's thinking about winning that division, they could go one and two to start things off. So, You don't want to dig yourself a hole, but you're right. I think if you took those three teams, those would be the three starts of the season that I would point to as maybe the most difficult.
1: And so for now, the Pac-12 championship game is scheduled to be on either December 18th or 19th, and it will now be hosted at the best team for the conference championship instead of in Las Vegas for the first time at that new Allegiant Stadium, which would have been really nice. But obviously... The pandemic has changed all of those plans. And even then, there still might be some flexibility, right, for the Pac-12 to move it a week later if necessary.
0: Yeah, I think it was a smart move here. Number one, as much as having a championship game in Vegas would be absolutely tremendous. I don't know if this is the year to kick off that agreement. You don't even know how many fans are going to be able to attend. So I don't know if it even makes sense to start that partnership right now. And then the ability to move that game is really important because you don't even know. And to be honest with you, I don't know. I would imagine that the stadium in Vegas would have other events. So maybe you don't necessarily have as much flexibility if you commit to having that championship game in that location versus having it on a campus, which really gives you complete flexibility.
1: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And again, hopefully we are going to be starting off with a season on September 26th. Final thing about this, besides USC, Who do you see as possibly the biggest contender in the South division?
0: You know, I'd still point to ASU right now. I know there's some questions about their offensive line. That was a problem a season ago. But if you said to me, draft quarterbacks, I think there's a real argument. It's not just Slovis, but it's Jaden Daniels. I mean, I think to me, those are the two top guys in the league. And I have complete faith in what Herm Edwards has been able to accomplish. Got a new offensive coordinator. In fact, got a new offensive and defensive coordinator. But Zach Hill stepping in on the offensive side, I think, is a good thing. I think he's more in line with the offensive philosophy that Herm wants to implement. I think Rob Likens, their former OC, was tremendous. But at the same time, how do you replace Eno Benjamin, a Brandon Ayuk? Now, they have Darby, who's kind of that deep long ball threat in that offense. But if they're able to figure out that running game, because I think people don't realize how much, you know, Benjamin, how important he was in that offense. If they're able to replace that running attack, to me, ASU right now is a team that I think is SC's biggest threat. But there is also that consistency that we've had and grown accustomed to with Utah. The problem with the Utes right now is that they're, I don't want to say rebuilding, but They've lost so many starters from last year's team. And then on the offensive side, once again, no Tyler Huntley breaking into a new quarterback. The one luxury Utah has right now that I don't think enough people are talking about. This is probably the best quarterback room in Salt Lake City in Kyle Whittingham's tenure. And I'm not even just saying his tenure as the head coach. Talking about 25 years, almost a quarter century. He's been with that program as their DC and their head coach and I know Alex Smith was there, and I'm not saying, hey, the best quarterback they've ever had. All I'm saying is collectively as a unit, there are some real options in that room. So Utah's still a dark horse. I'd still look at ASU as sort of the favorite to be the biggest challenger to a USC team. But if you're telling me right now, pick that division, it's the Trojans.
1: And if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Please subscribe and rate the show. You can also go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts, You can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. My guest today, studio host for the Pac-12 Network, Mike Yam.
0: Where can everyone catch up with you? Social media for sure, at Mike underscore Yam, both on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, Trojan fans, this is Brian Jones, college football analyst for CBS Sports. You're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network.
1: On Sunday, August 2nd, a group of Pac-12 football players released a message on the Players Tribune website calling for changes from the conference to, quote, protect and benefit both scholarship athletes and walk-ons, unquote. Their demands were listed in four separate categories, health and safety protections, protect all sports, end racial injustice in college sports and society, and economic freedom and unity. They said that unless the demands were guaranteed in writing by the Pac-12, they would opt out of fall camp and game participation. This hashtag WeAreUnited movement apparently began with some players at Cal at the beginning of July and grew into a group chat of over 400 players from all 12 schools over the course of a month. A letter addressed to Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott is signed by 11 players, one from each conference school except Colorado, and the PR release that was put out had 12 players listed as media contacts with USC, Utah, and Colorado not being represented there. There's a lot to unpack here, Mike, but I'll begin by asking you, how serious do you think these players are about actually boycotting team activities if their demands
0: aren't met? I think that's the million dollar question. I know for a fact that there is a ton of support for the movement and a lot of the things that it stands for, especially on player safety and racial injustice. What I don't know is how many of those players are willing to actually sit out and not play. I talked to one player, Over the weekend. And it was interesting because I've talked to a few, but I'm going to highlight this one because he's got a chance to play in the NFL. And I said, Where are you at with the movement? He said, Totally support player safety. And the racial injustice part of this is really important to me personally. The thing about it, he told me he felt safe though on his campus. So he said, As much as I'm all for player safety, I personally feel safer on my campus than I would even when I go to the grocery store or just go and leave campus. So He said, I think not every player feels that way around the league as I look at the chat and I see some of the comments that are being made. But he said, on my particular campus, I feel fine. And he said, the racial injustice part is absolutely 1000% something that is important to me. What's also interesting is he plays for a team that has a white head coach. And he said his coach has been instrumental in trying to connect not with not only him, but his teammates and understand some of the challenges that they're going through and is more than willing to help be an advocate for change. So while he understands the importance of it, I don't know if he's ready to sit out because he said, look, Mike, I grew up poor. And for me, I have a chance to play in the NFL. He goes, but I realize I'm not a first or second round pick. He said, I need to play this season. So for as much as I appreciate what this group is doing and I support them, I'm not personally willing to sit out because of my own situation.
1: And I think, honestly, some of those people who have their names listed as media contacts are on the letter to Commissioner Scott may also have those same conflicted feelings because I think most people can get behind most of these demands that they're asking for, especially when it comes to the medical part in terms of opting out of the season due to COVID-19 reasons without any repercussions, especially like you mentioned with the racial injustice movement that. A lot of players have been participating in, in campuses, not just in the Pac-12, but across the country. And like you said, some of these coaches have been out in front and helping their players find ways to register to vote, find ways to protest peacefully and all of that kind of stuff. But we've also seen something get leaked over the weekend. It was a conversation between new Washington State head coach Nick Rolovich and wide receiver Cassidy Woods, who is choosing to opt out of the season for Health and safety reasons, and he recorded a phone call between the two that seemed to have some kind of pushback on this movement. Do you think that that is also an issue that we could see from the schools?
0: You know, not as much. And I think there's been some misreporting or misinformation that's been out there. It's funny, I was reading the New York Times article and some of the things that Cassidy Woods was saying, and I've read the transcript and I haven't heard the audio. I actually don't even know if the audio is available. But I've talked to people at Washington State, and I've seen the things that Cassidy has said. I don't know how accurate some of it is. I'll give you an example. In New York Times article, Woods says he didn't feel comfortable signing a liability waiver. Well, Larry Scott actually put out a letter to the players addressing that no student athlete has been asked to sign a liability waiver. So I knew what Larry Scott had said, and I read the comments from Cassidy Wood's. So when I reached out to Washington State, talked to two different people on that campus, and they said, there are no liability waivers. What there is, is an acknowledgement form that we had all of our players sign. And I don't have the details of their form, but what I was told is the form basically says, hey, if you're sick, if you're feeling these symptoms, whether it's sore throat, headache, fever, you have whatever symptoms that are related to you know, kind of COVID, you're going to inform us and our training staff, and you're going to quarantine. Like In order to participate on the team, that was what they had asked for. If you are on our campus and you're training, we're asking you to follow CDC guidelines, which is wearing a mask, washing your hands, the hand sanitizer, all of those types of things. So to me, that seems reasonable, and that's very different than a liability waiver. So I think that sort of got my radar going a little bit when I saw that New York Times article. And then furthermore, he made reference to not being informed that his roommate had tested positive for COVID-19. Number one, Cassidy was in Texas at the time, so he wasn't there just yet. Number two, by law, Washington State can't tell any other student athletes who has tested positive. So what would have happened in that situation, when Cassidy would have arrived to campus, he would have been told for your health and safety, we have another room available for you, but we don't think it's safe for you to be in that room for a period of, I think it was seven to 14 days, whatever the case may be. And then after that time, you will be allowed to go back to your room. Now, I think logically we can all put it together. Hey, that means my roommate tested positive for COVID-19 he's quarantining and I do have other arrangements. So, you know, to me the, there are laws involved and when Cassidy Wood says, "Hey, I have sickle cell, I'm opting out of the season," that's standard. You're going to be told you can't be around the team then. And it makes sense to me if you say, "I don't feel comfortable and it's not safe for me because I have a medical condition, so I can't contract COVID-19. I will be in an at-risk group or I am in an at-risk group." To me that means that's not just go into a game and I can't play. That means you can't be in the locker room. You can't be around a dense amount of people. So I think maybe he didn't fully understand what was happening in the moment. But once you opt out for medical reasons, you know the conversation kind of ends there at that point.
1: Yeah. I think there was a miscommunication of some sort because if he is opting out and he's still expecting to work out with the team and in the facilities, That's incongruous, really. Like you said, it's not going to happen if you're opting out of the season, because especially with these new restrictions, they want as few people around as possible. So if you're not playing, I totally understand why they would say that you can't be around the facilities. So I think there is some stuff that has to get worked out there, and we'll see what happens with that. But when you look at these demands, I think the one that kind of really jumps out at people is the ask for 50% of the revenue from each sport be delivered to the players in that sport. And I mean, I think a lot of these demands are feasible. I don't think that one is. I mean, first of all, the only players who would be making any money are football and men's basketball players. Sure. And how does that even work
0: if you're going to try and do it that way? Yeah, it doesn't. And I agree with you. I think that's the one thing everyone who has read the list of demands have said look, like just not really feasible. Not only is it not feasible in the current landscape of college athletics, it's not something that can change anytime before the start of the season. There's so much nuance there. And you're right. Like it's all well and good to ask for revenue to be split among college athletes. But what about the non revenue sports? Like, do those athletes now have to pay to go and play at those schools? Because A lot of those teams operate at a loss for universities. It's football and men's basketball, and certainly more football than anything else, that's supporting those other programs. So it's not, it's just not realistic right now. What I do think is good is the NIL push, but we're in a day and age where that stuff is already happening. So, as much as I appreciate what the players are trying to accomplish here, I do wish there was more guidance from someone who maybe has more background in what's happening in the conference, like even the social justice aspect, like not for nothing. I mean, the Pac-12 is sort of on the forefront, not that I'm sipping the Kool-Aid here, but I have seen over the last eight years what the league has done in comparison to some of the other leagues. So to get a summit together, like that's likely to happen. You know, the players have been, all student athletes have been invited to take part in a Zoom call to answer some of the questions that were brought up in that letter. And I question how many of the 400 players are actually on that call, because I think they would have had maybe a better understanding of the dynamics and what they're actually asking for.
1: And the commissioner, Larry Scott, did address the letter that was sent to him by the players saying that he would love to talk and discuss further after he talks with the member schools and they want to set something up for later this week. And as we record this on a Tuesday, late Monday night, the players responded by saying they want to move up the timeline, apparently, and get things going faster. And I understand that we're in a bit of a time crunch before the start of the season, but it's just impossible to get all of these demands met before the start of a season. So we'll see in the end if these players really do go through with the threat of opting out of participating in fall camp and games if all of the demands are not met. So... It'll be interesting to see what goes forward, but I think you're right. The Pac-12 has been in front compared to other conferences when it comes to a lot of these matters, and obviously it still needs to be pushed forward even more during these times, but I think if they work together, some sort of common goal can be reached between the conference and the players within the conference.
0: Sure. I think that's what we're all hoping for is some sort of common ground here. And I do think in a lot of ways, the vast majority of the things the players have asked for, they will get because a lot of them have already been in motion.
1: If you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary or TuneIn, or you can go to the website Believe.com, B L E A V dot com on social media at believe podcast to catch up with me i'm on twitter find and follow me at Nara Wang sports n-a-r-a-w-e-n-g sports my guest today is mike yam studio host for the pac 12 network where can everyone find and follow you mike
0: yeah on social media it's on twitter and instagram at mike underscore yam and just mike yam on facebook this is Dane Bland, head coach of the USC Women's Beach Volleyball team and Olympic gold medalist. And you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara
1: Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. The Pac-12 proudly calls itself the Conference of Champions and for good reason. No other conference has the number of NCAA titles that the Pac-12 does, with Stanford, UCLA, and USC being the top three programs in Division One. And while it remains strong in the so-called Olympic sports, in recent years, we've seen some struggles for the conference when it comes to the two biggest sports, football and men's basketball. In the six seasons under the college football playoff structure, only two Pac-12 teams have qualified, Oregon in the first year, 2015, and Washington in 2017. In the last five NCAA men's basketball tournaments played, Only once has the Pac-12 received more than four bids to the big dance, and only Oregon can really claim any real success with a few Sweet Sixteens and the conference's only Final Four appearance during that time span in 2017. I'm as big a fan of the Pac-12 as you can find, having grown up in Northern California and then attending USC, and I've often found myself over the years defending the conference against some of the perceptions about it that are out there among fans from other conferences. But even I have to admit that the situation currently in those two money making sports is not trending in a positive manner. Mike, is the reality about the Pac 12 as bad as the perception about it seems to be on a national level?
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's as bad as everyone makes it out to be, but it's not good. You know, you just kind of highlighted a couple of those issues. I mean, we're talking about two playoff appearances since the college football playoff has come into existence. You know, it was Oregon in that first year, and then a couple years later in year three. It was Washington and Alabama. Generally speaking, and I've said this a lot, whether it's on SiriusX radio or Pac-12 network, it feels like the conference and their teams need to do more to get the same amount of attention that other teams normally get. So you kind of have to be you know, twice as good. And losses in this league seem to be magnified more than losses in other conferences. So there's a lot working against the league and people will talk about the time slots for the games. And while I do think that's a factor here, you know, there's not, nor, you know, this as a guy that grew up in Northern California and went to USC, like it's not the same on the West coast in terms of the, I won't say the passion, but Saturdays is not religion for college football, you know, for fans out here. Right. In the SEC and the big 10, like it is there. And in other states, it has a bigger weight. I know there's kind of that fun saying in the SEC, it just means more. And I do think there's something to that. I'd always argue like there's just more options out on the West Coast than there is maybe in the middle of the country, whether it's you know surfing in Southern California or coming up with the big next tech idea. Stanford has had so much success over the years and yet you, know, you go to a game there and it's not packed and that just wouldn't happen. For another team that's had their type of success on another campus. But students at Stanford are worried about, hey, how do I come up with the next billion dollar idea and create like, you know, the next big app? Like it's just, it's different out on the West Coast. And I think from a sports perspective, the league takes a little bit of a hit, but it all gets rectified. You win football games, you win men's basketball games, you get it done. And when their teams have had opportunities, especially in men's basketball, they haven't always delivered in the NCAA tournament. And when it comes to, College football, you know, Oregon can't go and lose on the road in Tempe. Now, I'd make an argument: you play non-conference games, and the SEC, for example, in the ACC, they're playing eight. That's a huge difference. You're building in these losses to the league that other conferences don't have. So, you're already working at a disadvantage because of the scheduling. You're already working at a disadvantage because of the nighttime deal and you're working at another disadvantage because of the fan bases that don't necessarily treat it like the SEC does in mass volume. So I think there's a lot of factors working against the league.
1: For sure. And I totally agree with you. I think sometimes it's overblown just because there's a better life-work balance right, out here in the West Coast maybe than in other parts of the country when it comes to the passion for sports. I think people are passionate about sports, but they are also passionate about other things that maybe other places have less of I don't know why, but it seems like the Pac-12 does get denigrated more for that than other leagues or other places around the country. And you're right. Listen, in the men's basketball tournament, I mean, 2018 was horrific. Only three teams made it. Two were in the first four, and every single one of them, Arizona, ASU, and UCLA lost in their one and only game. I mean, that was
0: horrible. And Arizona, by the way, I thought was capable of making a very deep run. I mean, that was Aiton's year, and the way they looked in the Pac-12 tournament was stellar. I didn't see the exit that they had.
1: Right, and so there's always been that kind of thing. Even in the year where they got a bunch of teams in seven in 2016, only Oregon made it to the second weekend, and everyone lost to a lower seed that season. So it's been difficult to try and get some traction for the Pac-12 in the two big sports of football and men's basketball. And like you mentioned, there's imbalances in scheduling. I've railed against that for years about how some conferences are playing eight conference games while the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are playing nine and the non-conference scheduling. But now this year, with this pandemic, this conference-only play across the country, it seems like, for the most part, is that going to affect this for everyone, including the Pac-12?
0: Yeah, I was talking to a good buddy of mine from Pac-12 Network, Yogi Roth, about this. And Yogi felt a little differently than I do. But I think the conference-only schedule, as it pertains to the college football playoff, I think actually works against the league. Because now, all of a sudden, everyone is playing conference-only games outside of the Big 12 and the ACC that have that plus-one model. And because I don't think the perception is what it is in the Pac-12 versus the other conferences, I think it's an uphill battle right now. So I think you need to have a monster season. And now the equalizer is this. If there are many breakouts on teams, how does the committee treat that? Do they look at it like the NCAA tournament committee does and maybe is willing to give them a little bit of a pass? Rosters are deeper, obviously, in college football. And I think the deepest teams right now are going to be the ones best served to make a run and win these football games. Because I do see a world in which there could be a couple of players that test positive and they have to go and miss a couple of games. And then how do you evaluate that? So I like the fact that the league is going five and five, five home, five on the road. I think that's at least helpful because now you don't have a team like Oregon, for example, that's got to play six road games or four home games. So I do like the equality standpoint, but I don't know if we get a team this year in any conference that goes undefeated. And if you're a one loss Pac-12 champion, I think you're going to have a case. And I think there's a lot of pressure right now on Oregon to fit the bill here. And I do think, and we talked about this at the start of this podcast, I think Oregon's schedule lines up for them to be in a good position to not only win the conference, but then also be in the college football playoff.
1: And I know it's tough to say in this year of the pandemic, but are better days ahead for the Pac-12?
0: Yeah, I mean I'd love to tell I'd love to say that that is definitely going to be the case and I'd like to say it's going to be better days for all of us, right? To be able to say hey, we're going to be out there and we're going to be able to get our fans in there, there will be a vaccine, but you know generally speaking I do think this stuff comes in cycles. A couple of years ago people worried about the Big 10, people worried about the Big 12 not even being in a conference. So, I do think there's a cycle to it, but I am concerned that if the Pac-12 isn't able, like you can only go so many years and not be in the playoff. You only go so many years and not get a team in the final four. And I know Oregon was sort of on the precipice of even getting to that point. And Dane Allman got them to a final four a couple of years ago, but you got to win a national championship as well. And I think on the football side, step one is to get into the playoff. And that's been an issue. Once they get there and you got a chance, you win a national championship, I think the entire narrative completely flips.
1: And finally, before I let you go, the million dollar question Are we playing fall sports?
0: I hope so. You know, I just saw a report numbers in California are actually going down, which is maybe the first positive thing that's happened in this state with regard to COVID in a while. I think it's a good thing that we are set up that if it's cleared locally at the state level to get games going, I like the fact that there's already something in place, a schedule in place that we can just kind of execute and go from there. I do have my doubts though about college football, college sports in general. I think seeing the breakouts in Major League Baseball and what they've had to go with is concerning to me because you can't have an NBA bubble, which to me is the safest way to go and do it. I don't know how you execute that at the college level. That said, you know we got a couple more weeks here. So let's kind of hope that numbers continue to trend down. And a lot of these student-athletes take COVID seriously. And I think that's the other question. Are you willing to take this disease, treat it like it's a serious matter, and do the things to protect yourself and your teammates and the people around you?
1: I think all of us are hoping for a best-case scenario, but it remains to be seen if we are going to get fall sports, especially in a sport like football, where social distancing is not an option. So, Mike... Thank you so much for joining me today on the Everything USC podcast. It's been fun chopping it up with you.
0: Absolute pleasure. Appreciate the invite.
1: For my guest, Mike Yam, studio host for the Pac-12 Network, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode eight of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in L.A. and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And as I end every show, please remember to...